Well, we've already read from the account of the crucifixion. And what a difference a few days make from Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry of Jesus and the cries of Hosanna. This is the coming Messiah. This is the coming King of the Jews. And now the cries sound very different. The cries of crucify him. The cries of agony. And also, in another way, as we look at this account in the gospel, cries of silence. So we've read about Good Friday, and we're here to commemorate that. I also want us to take a moment in our minds and think back to the whole night previous. Jesus had celebrated the Passover meal, the most important meal that Israel would celebrate, chronicling their deliverance and their captivity from bondage in Egypt thousands of years ago, where God had saved the Jewish people with a a mighty right hand and an outstretched arm. And not everyone realized, though, but it was forecasting this very deliverance that Jesus was about to win, that Jesus was coming to deliver. Not everyone got that. It's not surprising for some because some from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry were set out to get him. As Pastor Mercer reminded us, everyone has expectations of Jesus. Everyone has expectations of God and the Lord, of what should happen in life, of what who God is and what he's come to do. But maybe what's most surprising about this last earthly night of Jesus' life is the reaction of the apostles. The apostle Peter in particular. Peter on the night of Jesus' arrest does exactly what he promised he would never do. And that's he pretended that he didn't even know him, know Jesus. The truth of the matter is that though the kiss was planted by Judas, all the disciples, even those of us here tonight, are guilty of betrayal. Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, him being Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Every one of his disciples who had followed Jesus for three years, who had listened to him teach, who have seen him perform miraculous miracles, who had watched him pour out his heart, in his life, who had laughed with Jesus, who had lived with Jesus, who had been dumbfounded at all of his wisdom, every person turned against the Savior that night. Every person who had praised him during the triumphal entry of the king last Sunday now abandons him in their silence. Why did they do it? Why did they sit by while their teacher and their Lord was arrested and wrongfully accused and sentenced to death. We read yesterday at our Monday Thursday service how Pilate himself fulfilled the ancient prophecy that there was found in this man no guilt, no evil. And yet here he is, hanging on a cross. And lest we sit in self-righteous judgment of the disciples, or even Judas, what would our response have been? 
If we were Pilate or Caiaphas or part of the establishment, what would we have done? Why do we sometimes abandon him? Sometimes I wonder, did Judas really need or want the money? 30 pieces of silver. And he was the treasurer. He dealt with money. That was his job in the group. Did he maybe just want the attention? Was he frustrated? Or was it some foolhearted way of making a name for himself? Maybe Judas didn't like his lot in life. Maybe he expected, like many others, Jesus to be something or do something that Jesus didn't come to be or didn't come to do. Jesus didn't meet his expectation of what Messiah should be. For Caiaphas and Pilate and others, getting rid of Jesus was expedient. It was helpful. They had a political problem. They knew he wasn't guilty. And yet the crowds, the masses, the overwhelming popular support was crucify him. And wanting to be liked and wanting to hold on to power and significance and meaning in their own right, they gave in. Why do we abandon Jesus? Now, as I say that, you might say, wait a second. I'm here on a Friday night at 7 o'clock. What do you mean abandon Jesus? I'm a religious person. I pray. I've never denied him with my lips or in my prayers. And if that's true, praise the Lord. What about your heart? What about your affections? Don't we all, if we're honest, this Good Friday, at times, or in seasons of our life, keep Jesus at a distance? Maybe emotionally, maybe spiritually, maybe physically with our choice of activities and where we spend our time or our money. We might like him on Facebook or we might say, I'm, of course I'm a Christian. But 24-7, he has very little significance. We can abandon him with our silence and with our lack of attention. But regardless of all the reasons... It is true that the king of heaven and earth was crucified. The only innocent person who ever lived, who never did. I mean, can you take that in? Who never did anything wrong, who never said anything wrong, who never committed any lustful thought or action, who never lied. He never cheated. He never stole anything. He didn't break one iota of the law in 33 years. This year I'm going to be 33. I don't make it well by the time I'm getting breakfast in the morning. He never sinned. And here he is, hanging on a cross, the king of glory, dying a murderer's death. Why did he do it? Why is Jesus hanging on a tree at Golgotha? Well, for that, for the explanation of the crucifixion, we need to turn further into the New Testament to the apostles writing. And the apostle Paul in particular tells us in Ephesians 1 verse 5, in love, did you hear that? In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
God loves you. I don't mean to be rude in point, but God loves you. I imagine for many of us, that's not the first time you've ever heard that sentence. But I doubt that any of us are capable of fully taking that in. Do you really believe it? Do you ever wonder? Do you ever doubt? Can I be honest with you? Sometimes I do. Depending upon what your life or your circumstances or how things turn out, we sometimes wonder, does God really care? Is he really looking out for us? I don't know that we can fully take in the height and the depths of his great love for us with which he loves. But in fact, the greatest example is what we are here to remember tonight. The cross. If you wonder, does God care about your life? Don't look at what happened last week. Don't look at what you think is coming tomorrow. Let's look back 2,000 years at Golgotha and see this king of glory high and lifted up crucified the cross is not just an example of self-sacrificial love examples are inspirational but they don't save jesus is not just an example for us to live by jesus is a savior what he's doing on this cross is better than an example of love it's a atonement it's a it's a ransoming act of love jesus is buying us back he's winning us back jesus has come for one reason and that's not to give us the american dream or our best life now he's come to give us our best life forever it's better than the american dream it's better than any temporal circumstances or situations jesus pays the price he pays the penalty So that we who once were enemies, you know what we're called now? Sons and daughters of the king. Do you know that? Do you believe that? If you are in Christ, you are now a child of the king. And the worst you have to look forward to, you know how bad it's going to get? Everlasting joy. The worst it's going to get is everlasting peace. That's how this ends in the Christian life. It might be dark now, but it's always darkest right before dawn. In his presence, the psalmist says, is the fullness of joy forever. And he paid it all. Speaking of payment, uh, Isn't it funny how taxes and Easter often fall on the same week? With no offense to the Internal Revenue Service, but I think we can all pick a winner and what we're more looking forward to. On Sunday, we're reminded that God paid it all. But on Monday, I'll be reminded that I have to pay a lot. And what's that saying about the only things that are certain in life? Death and taxes. I'd like to add a third, and 
the only thing that is certain in this life exactly because of Good Friday and Jesus' death on the cross is that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what you can take to the bank. That's what's certain, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. You know, in the New Testament, we have many amazing and even surprising words of Jesus. He tells demons to go, and they flee. He tells Lazarus to come out. And a four-day-old dead man walks out of his tomb. He tells the water and the wind to be still. And they become silent. And while he walks on water, he tells his followers to have courage, to take heart. But perhaps no more surprising words of Jesus than we find here in Mark 15, verse 34. He cries out at the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We already mentioned that Jesus was abandoned by his closest friends. But now we see him in agony, crying out to his father. The one whom he came to do his will. The one who was his sustaining energy and passion. The one whom he was always about. When he was a little boy and his parents couldn't find him for days. Days. We lose Harper and Target for five minutes and we panic. Days they didn't know where he was. They find him. They find him in the the synagogue. And Jesus looks at his parents and says, Don't you know I must be about... My father's business. That same father whom he loved with an eternal love and joy who was from God from the beginning who he learned from the gospel of John who was God in the very essence of God and was with God. And yet in this moment somehow and in some way we're not able to understand he feels forsaken Jesus feels alone the father has laid upon the son the sin of the whole world and he was crushed for our transgressions Isaiah 53 7 says he was oppressed and afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter Jesus Christ was identified by John the Baptist early in his ministry as what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. For centuries, Jewish believers would gather on what's called the Day of Atonement, the most important day of worship in the entire life of Israel. And and there'd be, at the high point, the chief priest would come and after the people had brought their sacrifices and after they'd made their petitions and prayers there was a lamb and the priest would come and he would lay his hands upon the head of that lamb and and in that moment symbolize transferring 
the sins of the people to that. In essence, teaching them that in order for them to survive, in order for believers to have sins forgiven, something had to take their place. Blood had to be shed. We learned that way back in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, after they had sinned and fallen away, and God said, if you do this, you'll die. They didn't die. But something else did. Remember how they tried to cover themselves up? Fig leaves. Not very practical. Quite foolish. How often do we try to cover ourselves with foolish and impractical ways? We try to manage or create or control our lives. Yet if we're going to make it, if we're going to survive, something will have to die. And in the Garden of Eden, for them to be cloaked, for them to be clothed, for them to be covered... God killed an animal and fashioned from these dead animal skins clothing to protect them. Right in Genesis 3, humanity learns, in order for us to make it and survive, something has to die. Something has to take our place because God is not just merciful and loving. He's also holy. He's good and he's just. And he doesn't just sweep sin under the rug. He doesn't just say, let's take a mulligan on the human race. If he wasn't so, if he wasn't holy, if he was trivial with sin, then he wouldn't be worthy. He wouldn't be magnificent. He wouldn't be beautiful. God demands perfection because of his love. Law and love go together. They are not so easily separated. Sin has to be dealt with. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ is here doing at Calvary. God was not content to leave us in our sins, though we deserve it. He did something about your sin. He did something about my sin. Because of the great love with which He loved us, the Father made Him being Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us. That's the heart of the gospel. And those two words, for us. He's not just there bending the will of an omnipotent and omniscient, impersonal God. It's the Father's love that sent him there in the first place. He he did everything. He came to earth the same reason it's not just a bloody cross on Good Friday. That's the whole inertia behind the sweet baby at Christmas is for right here, right now in human history. The most important week, the most important night, we'll talk about, well, I should really say secondarily, Sunday morning we'll talk about the most important day in human history. But nonetheless, this week, for us, that's the heart of the gospel. That's the heart of Christianity. And by the way, if you're here tonight and been a believer a long time, that's not just for new Christians or non-Christians. The gospel is for all of us. I need the gospel every single day. I need to be reminded of this great story. I need to be reminded that I'm cloaked in his righteousness, that it's not up to me. I don't have to pretend to be something that I'm not. I don't have to earn or look for love in all the wrong places. It's here. It's right here for us. And that's strangely why we call such a horrific day in history Good Friday. 
I saw this afternoon a quote from Paul David Tripp and said the most awful thing in human history or the most awful event in human history simultaneously is the most wonderful event in human history, the cross. And then his application is, so be very careful how you measure the balance of your life. What may look like from the outset, even while you're going through it, it may look like a disaster. But God may be doing something new and beautiful and powerful and wonderful and we have no idea what he's really up to. Be very careful about making judgments about God's love or your life based on circumstances. Calvary tells us he's crazy about us. He loves us. Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you and I, who are united to him by faith, never have to. Never have to. I know for all of us, if we're honest, there are moments in life where we feel alone. There might be moments in your life where you feel forsaken. But it's not true. It's not true. If you're in Christ, you're never alone. It's okay if you feel that way. I'm not trying to encourage anybody to embrace denial on your feelings or emotions. But I I thought about, and I've said this recently in a Sunday school class, when our son was born and was in the hospital, and after his surgery and he had tubes coming in and out of him and he had all these nurses and all these dings and lights in the NICU at Batson. And I wondered sometimes if he could tell that Diane and I were there. Does he know that mommy and daddy are here? Probably not, maybe. But whether he felt it or knew it, we were there. Whether he knew it, whether you know it, whether I know it or feel it, it doesn't change the reality. God is there. God loves you. He cares for you. We don't always feel it. But Jesus is forsaken and cries out this amazing cry of the cross so that you and I never have to. Psalm 88 ends when it may be the, the second darkest place in Scripture outside of Calvary here. Psalm 88 ends. Darkness is my only friend. Darkness is my only friend. For those of us in Christ, we never know that. But Jesus does. And let me say, if you feel alone, or if you're struggling with feeling forsaken, this is why Hebrews says we have a great high priest who's able to empathize and sympathize with all our weaknesses. Jesus knows. He's not just God, so of course he is happy all the time. He was a human being who sweat blood, who lived, who got thirsty, who was hungry, who lived and he died. You can go to Jesus with your concerns and your fears and your weakness because better than anybody, more than you even understand yourselves, Jesus knows. Jesus has been there. You can learn a lot about a person when they come face to face with death. The last words of famous men and women have been well chronicled and recorded in history. One man said, I die before my time and my body will be given back to the earth 
Such is the fate of him who has been called the great Napoleon. What an abyss between my deep misery and the eternal kingdom of Christ. Napoleon Bonaparte. Thomas Hobbes, a great English critical thinker, said, If I had the whole world, I would give it to live one more day. I shall be glad to find a hole to creep out of the world at. I am about to take a leap into the dark. Jesus of Nazareth. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Also, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Dear woman, here is your son. I am thirsty. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus was in control right up to the very end. And the most important words ever spoken for you and for me in human history to tell us die. It is finished. It is finished. Jesus wasn't just talking about his earthly life. He was talking about his ransom and payment for sin. Lots of times as Christians talk and share about our testimonies, it's quite often, and it's a great thing, by the way, but we'll ask, uh, when were you converted? Or when were you saved? And some people might be able to recount the very minute where they first trusted in Jesus. And that's beautiful and wonderful. And I'm not just trying to be cheeky or sarcastic, but you know what my answer is? I was saved 2,000 years ago at the cross. When Jesus cried, it is finished. Not, it's 99% done. And then you got that 1%. You just take it, finish the line. If that's true, we have no hope. Because all we like sheep have gone astray. 2,000 years ago at Golgotha, our salvation is won. You can't earn it. So you can't lose it. And so I encourage myself, as all of us tonight, to stop trying to. Stop trying to prove ourselves worthy of it. For God so loved the world, not in John 3.16, not for God so loved the rich, not for God so loved the powerful people, not so God, for God so loved the cool people, not for God so loved the people who have a lot, for God so loved the world. You and me. He loved his children and his family. And all we have to do is receive it like a gift. It's true, though, we are saved by works. The works of Jesus. And living the perfect life that you and I can't live. And in dying the death at the cross that we deserve to die. We're saved by Jesus. And in him alone. And I want to close just our few moments in this message by reciting, uh, or really it's a quote from a sermon. There's no way I can do the voice or do it justice, so I encourage all of you to YouTube it later. Uh, you'll get what I mean when you see it. But S.M. Lockridge was a pastor in the 20th century and a very powerful preacher of the gospel. And this is what he said. It's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter's sleeping. Judas is betraying. 
but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Pilate's struggling. The council is conspiring. The crowd is vilifying. They don't even know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd. Mary's crying. Peter is denying. But they don't know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The Romans beat my Jesus. They robe him in scarlet. They crown him with thorns. But they don't know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. See Jesus walking to Calvary. His blood dripping. His body stumbling. And his spirits burdened. But you see, it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The world's winning. People are sinning. And evil's grinning. It's Friday. The soldiers nail my Savior's hands to the cross. They nail my Savior's feet to the cross. And then they raise him up next to criminals. It's Friday. But let me tell you something. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to their king. And the Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved. But they don't know. It's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. He's hanging on the cross, feeling forsaken by his father, left alone and dying. Can nobody save him? Oh, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The earth trembles. The sky grows dark. My king yields his spirit. It's Friday. Hope is lost. Death has won. Sin has conquered. And Satan's just laughing. It's Friday. Jesus is buried. A soldier stands guard. And a rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday. It's only Friday. And Sunday's coming. Jesus said... I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you for your grace and goodness. For the love which you have loved us from before the foundation of the world. For for living a sinful life Sin less life for sinful people like those of us here tonight. Lord, there's nothing we can boast in. Though as a people we love to boast. And yet, like Paul, we know that the only boast we can make is in the cross. And so may we make it our heart's desire, like Paul, to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. Help us to ponder anew the significance of the crucifixion and continue on with great sorrow as Jesus was called a man of sorrows. But prepare our hearts for new hope and resurrection glory on Sunday morning. We pray it all in his matchless name. Amen.